and welcome to Hello Human, a podcast to explore ideas and feature humans working in AI and technology. Craig LeClaire, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Forrester Research, and Stephen Siciliano, the Partner PM Director at Microsoft for Power Automate. Join us today on the Hello Human podcast, where we discuss the latest topics in artificial intelligence and how it's being applied in the real world. I'm John Nisley, the host of Hello Human and a longtime technologist working with companies to leverage first-in-class IT applications to win in the market. A big thanks to Fortress IQ for sponsoring the program, and be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. On this episode, we're going to explore how companies today are under near constant pressure to accelerate growth, efficiency, and ROI. Effectively implementing intelligent automation at scale is crucial for success in the enterprise, but this remains a challenge with large organizations because of the lack of resources to streamline business process discovery, gather accurate data, and then easily kick off automated workflows. With these two true industry leaders joining us today, it promises to be an interesting and lively discussion. Craig wrote a great book last year on the impact of AI and automation on the workforce. It's called The Invisible Robots in the Quiet of the Night. I would encourage you to track it down. I'll also put a link to it in the show notes. Stephen's work deserves some congratulations as well as the Power Automate platform has recently received significant recognition from the analyst community, which is just incredible given it just went into GA this spring. For today's episode, Craig is going to start us off and give us a briefing on some of his new, not yet published research around the autonomous enterprise, which is fascinating. Then Stephen and I will join the conversation to discuss with Craig how technology in the post-pandemic environment is going to shape the digital workforce of the future. So welcome to the Hello Human podcast, Craig. I'm excited to hear the analyst viewpoint today since you have the benefit of talking to a diverse group of technology leaders and strategists and then get to work your magic and meld all that thinking together into coherent trends and outcomes. Yeah, thank you, everybody, for joining and also for that great introduction. Understanding today, automate for tomorrow. That's uh, kind of what we're going to talk about. And uh, thanks for the uh, plug for the book. It's uh, actually doing doing quite well, so I'm really thrilled about that. But let me get into the content here. Uh, I've been with Forrester about, about 15 years, so I've used that sort of uh, collective knowledge to try to uh, bring all this automation together and what it means for society and for the future of work. Now, what we've seen in the last six months, we've all lived through it, so I don't need to talk about the effect. But I will in one small context, and that is this rate of acceleration in digital transformation. As analysts, we've been talking about transforming digitally really since the mobile explosion in, uh, say, 2010, 11, the iPhone had come out and all of a sudden everyone needed a mobile app. The consumer had power in their pocket that companies couldn't deal with because they had uh, gaps in their in their digital capabilities. And of course, we had disruptive companies with the sharing economy, mostly you know coming in and disrupting traditional businesses, whether it's the taxicab business, publishing business, and so forth. So digital transformation was a topic and a strong initiative of companies, but very slow progress until we hit the pandemic and and now you know we've all developed these uh, digital muscles we've you know learned how to shop online we've learned you know obviously we're all uh, working remotely most of us working the, you know, those of us fortunate enough to be able to so there's been this surge in in transformation and a surge in intelligent automation which I'll I'll describe briefly what that is but it's really been you know unprecedented the amount of energy and investment that's going into what I call practical automation. This would be task automation, RPA, but also the 
more pragmatic AI building blocks. And that combination is what we refer to as intelligent automation. And companies are you know, basically uh, redoing their roadmap for projects along the lines of this two-by-two. Like all two-by-twos, it's the upper right that is the more prized real estate. So what you're seeing there, what we call the acceleration zone, are automation that's being applied in, in these areas, you know, doing remote work. Uh, we Our forecast, as I'll show you in a minute, is you know, tens of millions that will remain uh, working from home post-pandemic, whenever that golden period is. And so automation is needed to support them in different ways. A part of that is uh, text analytics, which is really being applied to you know, paper processes, to documents and emails and forms. You know, you can't go in the office and shuffle papers anymore. Remote business is another area. Uh, the number of banks, for example, that don't have mobile deposit is pretty high, like 30, 40 percent. So there are still a significant amount of business that depends on face-to-face uh, type of interaction, which is very difficult under the current conditions. So the answer is automation. So the projects that companies had, which might have been balanced between this sort of more tactical automation and more transformative AI-based business transformation, that's the lower left, those projects are losing momentum. You know, it's that you know emerging technology team that might have been working with open source tools and trying to figure out how to instantiate the next generation business, uh, you know, algorithmically, you know, is now uh, being de-emphasized uh, for uh, this more practical automation that has to occur, you know, backed by the recession as well as as by the pandemic. So this is kind of the rejiggered roadmap, if you will, that the buyers that we talk to, this is how they're thinking about the world going forward. And we're really, this is a bold attempt, really, to try to define what the workforce looks like uh, post-pandemic and where it's been. Now, we call it the golden age of work, but really for many, many years, you know, we had relatively stable employment for a large number of of, percentage of the population. Automation really expanded jobs rather than disrupted them more. You know, you had a automatic uh, nail gun, but the carpenter was still deciding where to put the nails. It just made that job easier. You had stronger labor unions, you had stronger and more stable middle-class benefits and income. But what you've moved to is a world where you're going to see with the recession and with automation, you're going to see automation deficits or job losses start to pile up. Uh, Traditional safety nets are declining you're seeing social unrest. A lot of what we're seeing on the streets today is is a combination of factors. A part of it is this loss of perhaps hope for middle-class lives to be expanded the way they were in the uh, golden age of work. So there's a lot of frustration underlying a lot of uh, society right now. And a lot of it has to do with work. A lot of it has to do with the pandemic. A lot of it has to do with anxiety-related automation. You know, the the widening and exposing uh, skill gap that you know workers see when they go into you know the workplace and all of a sudden the technology they're dealing with is is harder to understand it's maybe evolving at a faster rate than they are these are all aspects of the new workplace you know tactically you know digital elites uh, spread far and wide uh, so uh, you know, we're going to see a significant growth in the talent economy, the, the sort of the human cloud, if you will. We're going to see a lot of workers remain at home and so forth. So organizations will flatten and education is, is going to be, you know, re, so sort of rethought the value of traditional education with the pace of automation. And this development is going to be exposed as not being the most adequate way to do it. So we're going to need 
the private sector to step up and you know really push education at work and lifetime learning and 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 so forth. So uh, you know a bit of a view of kind of where we're at this sort of nexus, this uh, re- re- this really important point. Uh, this is just uh, I won't go through this table in detail, but there are a lot of discussion of where we were pre-pandemic in terms of work from home, and that's that second column to the you know from the left. And what we've done here is predicted based on the type of skills that you have in your work. So on the left, you see these personas. Personas are essentially generic work categories where the occupations of which there are uh, 980 that the U.S. Uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics tracks. We've mapped them into these smaller set of generic categories based on the skills, thinking that automation will affect these skills in such a way that you can actually think of your workforce in these more simple and more generic terms. And if you're a human touch worker, uh, such as a massage therapist, um, you know, you're going to have this movement from 3% pre-pandemic, you know, to 8%, you know, where you'll be working from home. So you go down these areas and you see the the most advanced knowledge worker that cross-domain, we think 35% of that population will remain working at home post-pandemic. So all of this means a very it's a sea change in how we're working, where we're working, that's going to affect our lives and 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 basically how we get work done. So that's just kind of a you know a brief view of that. Now, when you look at automation, this is a model that's coming out. This is actually not published yet, but we have really divided you know work in terms of trying to look at it in terms of how humans and machines interact. So this is the sort of the, the, the basis of the pyramid. At pattern one, the software is completely controlling the process. Now, we've been doing that for many, many decades. This is workflow, digital process automation, deterministic, uh, human-machine interaction that is really defined and fully articulated by a task map, uh, maybe built with a process orchestration engine. The employee-driven is the interesting one for, I think, Fortress and for the intelligent automation market, because here you see humans controlling the automation, you know, firing off an automation, basically giving instructions to a bot to go off and do something. And this is an area that is really going to accelerate in the next few years. It's being accelerating right now due to the pandemic. And I'll blow that out a little bit for you. Semi-autonomous, you have humans and machines really as peers. A machine may make a decision or make a set of recommendations and provide them to the human, and the human will make a decision based on that. So you start to move at levels three and four patterns into this non-deterministic world based on AI, which basically is using machine learning and refresh data. And some of that data can can reformat the algorithms within the model. Uh, And so you you get into the issues uh, around explainability, you get into issues of predictability, you get into issues of emasculation of the human worker. So what we, what we think, the, if you look at these four patterns, and of course four, really autonomous is where the machine does everything. The human is not really in the loop in that sense. But the key is, is that to really understand where automation is going in the future and how it can be best deployed in your organization, you need process technology to understand how the human's interacting you know, with the machine. You know, what is the specific interaction? What are the implications of that of, of that interaction? So you need to think about the pattern level that you're at. This is not a progression. I mean, you can have a level one pattern that's interacting with a level four pattern. 
They really are just when you recognize the characteristic of the pattern, you need to uh, understand the right level of process understanding and process analytics that you need to, to, you know, to really drive the best result. Now, as you move you know, up those levels, you need to focus more on some of these aspects. If you look at these seven aspects, these all get to be more important as you move from a pattern one to a pattern two, to pattern three, and pattern four. Obviously, there is no you know, real algorithm in level one. You know, level one is just, you know, task to task type of, de, you know, deterministic, you know, workflow orchestration. But as you start to move to that level four, that's a closed loop pattern, the algorithm has to be perfect. Um, you know, otherwise you're going to have a really bad result. Um, and, uh, you know, this is where you, you need those kind of checkpoints in development of the algorithm and testing and so forth, uh, looking for bias and so forth. You know, you need, as you move to higher patterns, you need specific steps for uh, bot mastery, for how humans will control the bot, how they will train the bot, how the, how the bot will actually inform the human about ways that the human can act better. There is this sort of uh, interaction with human from a learning standpoint, you know, with the machine. And you need design thinking and digital worker analytics. And this is what we'll talk about in the last slide. The more you start looking at level two patterns in particular, level three patterns, level four patterns, you really have to have a way to study how humans are interacting you know, with the machine. You need co-development because a lot of the, the more sophisticated algorithms really have to stem from knowledge of the business and intimacy with the business. So you need business, but you also, because you're dealing with more advanced technology, you're, you're dealing with machine learning, you're dealing with text analytics, you're dealing with conversational intelligence, you, you need strong uh, and deep professional development and data science capabilities. So you need this sort of converged development environment, collaborative, low-code and deep development teams working together. Now, that's very, very important at higher level patterns. And of course, it's all about data. Higher quality data is needed. You know, uh, there, there isn't the, the influence of data in an ongoing refresh that, that's making the basis of making decisions that are you know, predictive, that are used for decision management in the upper level patterns. You don't have that at the lower level patterns. And of course, the governance for the reasons I, I cited. And employee anxiety, as we talked about in the future of work model, this is very, very, very important. We're, we're going to see that we need to start designing these systems at levels three and four, where we really understand, you know, what the effect of on the human is of, of different patterns, you know, within the, the machine work. You know, we're just seeing that, you know, understanding the, the uh, anxiety due to skill gaps, you know, understanding that being able to turn monitoring on and off might be really critical in this pattern, but not in this pattern. So th that's going to be an area of a greater discussion going forward and, a, and an area of greater research. All of these patterns is all about, you know, the process, understanding the process. The better you understand the process, the stronger your human machine interaction is going to be. And to do that, you know, we have to solve this uh, process gap issue. Now you see digital worker analytics you know, think of this as emanating from the understanding the human inputs and outputs uh, relative to a machine. That might be, in, you know, recording that occurs, you know, in, in uh, looking at what a, a human's doing on a machine. That might be brought into a analytic environment where you're coalescing and summarizing human patterns across 50 or 100 different workstations and looking for anomalies, looking for areas that can be automated. You know, that's a really important 
piece of this. Um, you then have traditional process mining, which, and, and Fortress has a different way of doing this, but traditional process mining, you're going into log data, you're analyzing that to get a view of that end-to-end -end process, looking at it from empirical data coming from the running process, you know, a brilliant set of technology. And then, of course, you have customer journey analytics. And this is looking at, you know, what is the customer doing as they move, um, you know, on their journey from, you know, the more persuasive type of interactions at the front end of the journey to the more service type of interaction once they're a customer. Understanding what they're trying to do, their context and so forth is another whole area of study and area of gathering channel information to understand that. And then, of course, you have on the left, process analytics that come from a process orchestration that's built. So the, the issue in the industry, and I think going forward, is that you know, we have these software capabilities, the platforms that tend to focus in, in one or maybe two of these four areas, but they're really not bringing it all together. What we really need for the future of process is to get metadata from all of these environments bring it into a, um, a data environment that can then be analyzed and understood with machine learning and other, and other techniques to be able to drive the running process. And we're not there yet, uh, but we'll get there. So with that, I'm going to uh, turn it back over and we'll have a, a short discussion. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for that update. Thanks for sharing that autonomous enterprise model, which is not yet published. That's great. And I think it's always you know, helpful to get the analyst's opinion because you guys are exposed to so many different companies and industries. I think you tend to see, you know, patterns and trends before anyone else does in a lot of cases. And I certainly appreciate that comment on the digital muscle. I think like a lot of people in the, the COVID era, I haven't missed too many meals these days. So I'm going to tell my doctor next week that I just have digital muscle. He's, uh, he's got to get used to the new normal. Anyway, I'll let you catch your breath for a second and get uh, Stephen into the conversation here. So, Stephen, you know, we've heard from Microsoft that you guys really saw two years worth of digital transformation in two months in those early stages of the pandemic. You know, just curious, has that pace continued? You know, can you provide us any, you know, sort of stories from the front lines? You know, who's doing good? Who's, you know, maybe not doing so good? And, you know, feel free to just give us your, your sort of color on the situation these days. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say the good thing is things have slowed down a little bit. You know, we're we're settling, we're seeing customers settle into this this new mode of operation, and that's particularly important because I think at the beginning, you know, there was this mentality that maybe the pandemic was a little bit like a sprint, when in reality it's much more like a marathon. You know, people are going to be operating in this mode for a, quite a long period of time, and it's really causing permanent changes to happen across industries and across organizations. So in the in the first two months, there was definitely a huge surge in, you know, getting systems that were previously hadn't been touched in, you know, years or decades to a place where they could interact digitally with the other pieces of organizations. Luckily, I think things are settling into a more sustainable way of operating right now. And that is that is what we've seen. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that there isn't this huge backlog in demand for digital transformation that's being accelerated. But I don't think the acceleration is accelerating anymore. I don't know what you call that in physics terms, but the, you know, velocity cubed. But to the point that you, you raised as well of, are there organizations that have done it well and organizations that haven't done it well? And I, and I think, you know, we've seen even from both internal to Microsoft and publicly that there is a very wide spectrum of, you know, some companies and organizations. And, you know, even as Microsoft, you know, in the first 
couple months, we were working with educational institutions. We were working with public health institutions who had to be able to rapidly respond to things like COVID testing. And in fact, today, with the Power Platform, we have many examples where you know COVID testing is still happening, right? It's still out there, and it's being built and running, you know, both from you know local all the way up to national levels on the Power Platform in a in an automated way. And that that was something that just wouldn't be sustainable to build from scratch using the the tools of of you know the yesteryear where you had to build writing code you know all of those things from day zero so I, I think that that's an example of where things have gone well because they've had to on the flip side you know there definitely are places where you know government agencies otherwise have not done quite as well and generally that's happened where there's been these legacy systems in place and there hasn't been the appetite, to put an automation layer between the what you know what people are facing and that the back ends you know there's the, the story I, I you know some people may be familiar with where you know for certain unemployment systems they actually you know put out an article saying please stop automating this unemployment system because we can't handle it in the back end and you know that's definitely an example where if you're not building the right pieces in between what the users are interacting with and the back end, you're going to run into, into problems. So we're seeing less and less of that now that people are getting used to this new normal, quote unquote, but it's definitely something to be cognizant of, you know, across all different types of organizations. Yeah, no, I, I like that concept of transitioning from a from a marathon or from a sprint to a marathon. And, and I was actually thinking of the same example. I think it was with the, the pay, paycheck protection uh, processing, you know, essentially the technology worked too good and was creating too much of a backlog. And they, I think they told people they had to stop using RPA to, to process all that, you know, all those documents and, and contracts that were coming through. You know, so Craig gave us a, a good look into this, you know, potentially post-pandemic workforce over the next, you know, 10 years or so. You know, what's Microsoft's view on changes to the workforce over the next decade and, and the impact that that technology will have? You know, I saw, you know, I think earlier this month, Microsoft's now not planning to reopen offices until July of next year. And I think 50% of, of work can be done remotely moving forward. You know, what, what do you see coming for the workforce of the future? You know, and, and, and especially in that sort of five to, to 10 year range, you know, beyond sort of the initial crisis response, but not out in the, the science fiction land. Yeah. So it is interesting, you know, for Microsoft ourselves, one thing to call out is we actually are seeing different velocities in different parts of the world. So, you know, for the United States, for example, that was that July date, but there are other parts of the world who are doing much better. So they're already, you know, back in the office. And I think what we'll see is, you know, definitely different different speeds that organizations are going back to to working, you know, in offices. Uh, we'll also see different proportions, and this is exactly what Craig was talking about, right? As you go down that list, you know, there are some industries where, you know, you're going to get to 8% remote, you know, work, but in other industries, you're going to get 35. And I think what is particularly important is as people are working remotely, how do they have the tools to be successful in that environment? And that's something that will require in some cases up-leveling the digital literacy of the workforce to a point where they can be more familiar with things like 
at Microsoft, we often talk about Microsoft Teams, but you know, we all know that's not the, the only uh, video conferencing software out there. Today, we're using GoToMeeting. But up-leveling the digital literacy of the workforce is going to be really, really essential. You know, If half the people are working from home, they have to be able to accomplish not just you know, get by, but to really thrive in that digital environment, or else we're going to lose a massive amount of productivity from the world economy. So finding ways that organizations can thrive digitally and that the workers can thrive digitally is going to be really essential. And, you know, as Microsoft, one of the things we talk about is this idea of what we call the remote work platform, which is built on top of Microsoft Teams and leverages the power platform to be able to give people ways to to build out automation themselves to be able to give people ways to use the chat interfaces inside of Teams to be more productive with their organization. So I think the workforce over time will transform from just being a consumer of platforms like Teams, of you know, GoToMeeting or what, you know, whatever it may be, to also bringing their knowledge of the processes that they have to transform them to be more efficient because you have to be more efficient with everybody working remotely. That's great. And I, I think, you know, obviously this this work remote opens up a whole nother issue around compliance and, and how do you understand exactly what's going on, you know, with your workforce that's now spread out all over the world. But that's probably a, a topic for another day as well. So turning back to Craig a little bit, you know, looking at that human agent teaming and the, the, the autonomous enterprise model, again, you walked us through those four four patterns of interaction, you know, the human in control, the machine in control, you know, those, you know, at each end of the spectrum seem, seem pretty straightforward. It's that semi-autonomous layer, you know, where humans and machines kind of share authority, you know, in that gray area, which, which is a bit more curious, you know, can you provide a bit more color, you know, any examples of it in practice? You know, my mind keeps going back to, to Matthew Broderick and war games and the struggle between, you know, AI versus human and who's going to be in control. That reference is probably too young for Stephen, I would guess, but some others in the, the awesome. audience might have picked it up. Unfortunately, not for me. You know, you picked on the one that is the, in some sense, the most interesting and, and also maybe the most poorly defined at this point. But here's an example. One of the areas that intelligent automation is really jumping on is is document-centric text analytics. So uh, we call it intelligent document extraction, you know, but basically going into forms, emails, and documents using natural language processing and maybe some, you know, surface automation to extract clean sets of data, right? So the machine will do that and maybe present confidence levels for fields that are extracted. And if the confidence level in terms of its accuracy is below a certain threshold, it routes the situation to a human and the human makes the final call on the accuracy of that extraction. So that's an example where it's it's semi-autonomous. You know, the machine is is doing things that the human doesn't understand, how it's being done, but the human is in the loop to really share that authority. You know, the machine's doing a lot of decision management in that. You know, it's saying, you know, these, you know, uh, 27 fields that I've extracted are perfect, and I'm not even going to show those to a human because I am smarter than that human. But these three, I need to just uh, send off to, to have another look at. So that's one where humans and machines are sharing authority. You know, it's not closed loop. It's not the machine's not, you know, taking that clean set of data and then, 
you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, determining the sentiment, you know, based on that coming from a customer and, you know, you know, handing it off to somebody to deal with that sentiment. It's bringing a human in to share that authority. So that's an example that I think is good. But, uh, you know, that pattern three is the one that has the most opportunity, I think, for for humans and machines to do exciting things together. It's really your intelligence augmentation aspect there. I mean, a lot of the level two patterns that, you know, the RPA market so enthralled with, you know, are relatively, you know, simple task automations that you, you want a human to direct, but they're they're not really, you know, doing anything a whole lot different than what was being done before. They're just lifting out the the human inefficiency. But level three really gives you a, a you know, and four, but, but three gives you a, a real interesting way to uh, think about the process in a very different way. Building on, on that a bit, Stephen, you know, AI has been described as, you know, quote, infinite interns and, you know, having this immense but really non-expert capacity. And when I first got involved in AI seven, eight years ago, I think we used to say, you know, if I can teach an intern to do it, I can teach the computer to do it. But if I require a PhD to do the work, um, I can't teach the the computer to do it. And I think that, you know, given the advancements in the past, you know, five, six, seven years, I think that's starting to be a bit bit short-sighted. You know, what's what's your view on whether you can really combine the the power of humans and machines through intelligent automation. Yeah, so I think the example that Craig just laid out is is actually perfect. And we can do that today with uh, the technology that we have inside of Microsoft. And one of the things that's really important about enabling the, the infinite interns to do something is that you have an experience that can be used to train that AI, but that doesn't require a whole lot of expertise in how the AI works in the back end, in you know, understanding how machine learning works. You know, those types of things are very challenging concepts. And if the person who is trying to set up that process has to understand you know, the intricacies of natural language processing, they're never going to be successful in developing the, the models that are required to actually execute the process. Uh, so one of the things that we've been very passionate about is not only are we, you know, do we have kind of the AI chops under the covers, but also surfacing AI through experiences that can be very, very easy to build and get started with. And if you think about, you know, Microsoft has talked about this idea of, uh, you know, responsible AI principles. And one of those key principles is transparency, right? So that way you understand what the AI is doing, at least in terms of the output, even if you don't understand kind of the inner workings of, you know, every, every you know, hyper parameter that goes into that particular AI calculation. So, yeah, I, I think really what it comes down to is how well can we build experiences to train the AI so that way the humans who are actually part of that process can trust it because they understand what it's outputting. They understand, you know, as Craig mentioned, there's some level of confidence that it's always returning. So as, as long as we're transparent with that, uh, then you can have really any type of process that's built out being used by the people building out the process, leveraging that pool of quote unquote interns. Yeah, that's great. Now, obviously that, that issue of AI ethics and transparency is massive. And again, probably a, a great topic for another, another session as well. How can we overcome this anxiety, given it will be difficult to reskill workers in the short short term, 
Stephen, you want to take that? Yeah, I think one of the things that we've been focused on is how do we lower the barrier to entry for automation? So that way, the people who are today doing those tasks can build out the automation and and up-level their own skills themselves. This kind of dovetails with the question that we were talking about a while ago is, you know, how is the workforce going to change? Well, one of the ways that the workforce is going to change is people who are simply just executing that business process today will be able to infuse automation as a part of it. And as we think even about this pyramid that we have on the screen, it doesn't remove humans from the loop entirely until you get all the way to the tippy top of that pyramid and in, in you know the, the fourth layer of the pyramid. So people are still a core part of the process. So from an anxiety point of view, as long as you know there's still some need for that human intelligence, the you know the decision making capabilities that we have over machines, right? I I don't trust those infinite interns to make you know the core decisions of our business. You are going to be able to still have those combinations of humans and the automation that the humans build working together, and I think that that will alleviate some of the anxiety that folks are facing. Craig, you, you know, you talked a bit about the process gap and desire of, of companies to, to really address it. To me, this sort of suggests, you know, lack of, of detailed operational insights is really a, a missed opportunity for companies and, and if used effectively, could create competitive advantage. You know, what, what do you see as some of the top areas across the, the enterprise that that could, could benefit? Well, I think that the whole thing here that is gives you optimism about getting a better handle on the operational processes are the fact that you can transition from the long consultant-led, and I love consultants, but the length of time and the length of project when you have your traditional, you know, document the as-is, you know, with human consultants doing interviews and surveys and so forth, and moving that to grabbing data, you know, transparently, you know, from these processes. And and if you see the digital worker analytics uh, and the process mining, that's what they're doing. You know, they're not, they're actually gathering data, empirical data from the running process and applying advanced analytics to that. You know, that, that's really the, the key to get a more efficient insight, to get better insight and get it more efficiently. You know, so you, you look at the, the ability to, you know, access data from, you know, a thousand workstation interactions, you know, across a hundred humans and be able to synthesize that. And, you know, machine learning is brilliant at pattern, you know, you know manipulation and understanding. It's perfect. And you compare that to having to go out and, and try to understand what those people were doing. Uh, you know, just it's just the technology allows you so much opportunity to get a better understanding of the operational process and ultimately to direct that process in real time, you know, through orchestration and through automation, you know, the ability to, you know, light up uh, an algorithm that's in the cloud, you know, to make a decision or light up a task automation digital worker to go do something based on what's going on. That's the real value of where I see this going. A lot of companies are starting with the business shared service areas because there's a lot of inefficiency in those areas. If you look at the finance and accounting, you look at HR, you look at sourcing and supply chain and procurement and these areas that every company has, those are the older systems in a company. They're not the ones generating revenue. They're not the ones that have been part of big transformation. So there's a lot of inefficiency there. And a lot of the acceleration of intelligent automation has been focused on clean extraction of, of low value tasks and labor 
you know, out of those areas. And I think all of this lends itself towards the exploration of those processes. But that's only the beginning because I think the line of business, the real processes that you know that run companies are 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 ultimately can benefit tremendously from you know from all this technology. So I'll stop there. Cool. And I'll I'll let Stephen kind of wrap things up for us here. You know, once that that process gap's been addressed, you know, really becomes then an issue of, of process orchestration and managing and execution and managing and executing those activities, you know, based on the data. You know, what what can we expect, you know, in this area in the, in the next uh, next few years? Yeah, so you're going to see a lot of organizations moving into this space. You know, there's been even in just the the past few months, there's been a lot of focus on process automation from some of the the bigger players in the market as well. You know, Amazon has Honeycode, Google released their application platform, Salonis bought Intergomat. So there's really going to be I think a lot of options available to companies for how can they, you know, once they understand what the gap is, how do they automate that and how do they build the processes on top? And, you know, obviously I'm a little biased because, you know, I I work for Microsoft that, you know, we have a a really great tool that folks can take advantage of, but you're going to see a lot of uh, different options and a lot of activity in the space. And in the end, the competition is going to be really great for all of us, right? Because it's going to be able to expose all of the different ways that folks can be more productive, that they can, you know, really uplevel their skills and their capabilities in these, you know, very challenging times that all of us are facing. So I'm excited about the upcoming capabilities and all the things that will be built in the market in the, in the next few uh, years. That's great insight. And that's a great point to end on. To recap today's episode of Hello Human with guests Craig LeClaire from Forrester Research and Stephen Cisliano from the Power Automate team at Microsoft, we were fortunate to get the latest thinking from two real industry leaders. With the ongoing return to business, effectively implementing intelligent automation at scale is crucial for success in the enterprise. However, this remains a challenge with large organizations because of a lack of resources to streamline business process discovery, gather accurate data, and then easily kick off automated workflows. By combining the strength of Fortress IQ's process intelligence and Microsoft's Power Automate, organizations can quickly detail their current state operations, pinpoint the most optimal areas for automation, and execute RPA and automation initiatives on the fly with minimal coding required. That's a wrap on today's show. Thank you, Craig and Steven, for joining me and for Fortress IQ's sponsorship. I'm John Nisley, and this has been Hello Human. If you enjoyed this session, subscribe and check out our series at fortressiq.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for joining us today on Hello Human.